everybody, how's it going? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Before we get into this really amazing interview with Michael Mergen, the trumpet professor at Cincinnati Conservatory of Music and a former member of the president's own Marine Band, I just want to take a second to thank our sponsor for the podcast, Houghton Horns. For those of you that aren't familiar, Houghton Horns is a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, and their mission is to spread the joy of music through providing the highest levels of products, services, and resources to the brass-playing community. Finding the right equipment for you is essential for ease of production and enjoyment of playing in your music making. But needing to rent or buy things to try them out can be time-consuming and expensive. If you're looking for a way to learn about new horns or other equipment, check out Houghton Horns. They offer free virtual equipment consultations with their team of professional musicians, which means whether you live in Keller, Texas, or you live outside the United States, Houghton Horns is able to serve you. I actually did a video with Houghton Horns demonstrating what a virtual equipment consultation looks like with one of their co-owners, Derek Wright. So I'll leave that link in the description so you can check that out if you would like. And also, we're going to have a code in the description for you trumpet players out there. Uh, so make sure you check that out and take advantage of that code as well. At Houghton Horns, they strive to put service to the customer as their top priority. Whether you are a beginner student, a hobbyist, or a full-time professional, Houghton Horns can help you find what you're looking for. Go to HoughtonHorns.com for more information. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and today I'm really excited to be here with Michael Mergen, who is the trumpet professor at the Cincinnati Conservatory of Music and uh, a recently retired member of the United States Marine Band, President's Own, President's Own Marine Band. Um, Michael and I were introduced to each other when he uh, had me out. Uh, to work with the students there and to kind of hang out a little bit. And um, Michael and his studio are incredibly uh, gracious to me and kind to me and just welcoming and made me feel like part of the family, so to speak. And so um, I I'm just excited to be able to, to turn things back on you and have my audience get to know you a little bit. Um, uh, I observed you do some lessons and kind of just how things go. So I'm kind of interested in kind of digging in and um, kind of hearing a little bit more about your lesson philosophy and how you try to do things and, you know, performing and all that kind of stuff as you did for uh, for a long time with the band. So um, I'm looking forward to diving in. Before we do, though, I'm really grateful that you gave me some of your time this afternoon that we could chat. I appreciate it. Well, I'm uh, equally grateful to you for the invitation to appear here. And uh, we remain grateful to you for coming to visit us in the studio and hope that you will uh, return off soon and uh, and often. So thanks again for the invitation today. Of course. Uh, let's start with your backstory. Uh, when did you pick up a trumpet or were there other instruments involved before the trumpet? And it was just kind of follow your educational path and how you got to where you are now. I began uh, as a piano player and I took piano lessons from uh, about kindergarten to third grade. And in the public school I attended, we were offered the opportunity to start wind instruments in uh, fourth grade. So I started in public school. I was nine years old. 
how I chose the trumpet was simply I was in that part of my life where I was uh, copying my older brother with uh, whatever he did, and he was a trumpet player at the time. And so perhaps that was the sound that was in my ear. Um, and so I began trumpet then. Uh, we were lucky to have a public school band director who was uh, an incredible teacher, very dedicated to his students, happens to be a very fine trumpet player, went to Towson University, not too far uh, from where I grew up in New Jersey. And uh, he was at Towson University when the great Hank Levy was there. And so was a big time uh, Stan Kenton guy and a big time uh, Maynard Ferguson guy. So uh, we had a good time. Uh, and, and then he uh, wanted to go back and take uh, trumpet lessons and found a, a man in uh, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, which was about 45 minutes where I grew up from where I grew up. And uh, he went to my band director, this is my elementary band director, uh, went to my parents and said, uh, I feel like uh, we're getting to a part of his uh, trumpet development where I'm not going to be able to offer him as much as he needs. Why doesn't he come and take lessons with the same person I'm going to go take lessons from? And uh, that was back in the days when it was okay for me to just ride out there with him. In the, in the, in the, uh, so my mom would pick me up every week at, at uh, Gary's house after we were done taking lessons. Uh, and that man's name is, is Larry Wright, who is a phenomenal trumpet player in the Allentown, Bethlehem, uh, Eastern Pennsylvania area. And he played in all the area orchestras in Bethlehem, the Allentown Symphony, the Bethlehem Bach Festival Orchestra, um, Lehigh Valley Chamber Orchestra and others. And then he was a founding member of the Philadelphia Brass, a phenomenal brass quintet. And then he taught at a couple area uh, schools and things. Uh, from there, I went to the University of Michigan for my undergraduate degree. And I went there to study with Armando Gatala, who I had uh, the privilege to study with for a year. Uh, and then he retired at the end of my freshman year, and, and uh, Charles Duvall came and was his replacement. So uh, I finished up my last three years in Michigan with Charles Duvall, and then I uh, went to Eastman to study with uh, Charlie Geyer, where I received my master's degree in 1998. And then in 1999, was uh, privileged to win a spot with the United States Marine Band in Washington, D.C., where I served for 21 years, and then retired in the summer of uh, 2020, and have been teaching at Cincinnati ever since then. So that's that's the trajectory. Yeah, that's so cool. Um, obviously, you know this, and everyone who listens to my podcast knows I also study with uh, Barbara and Charlie, so it's cool to have that connection. And when I interview people uh, who studied with them, I always kind of find it interesting to, because um, I know people are just generally interested in what's the secret? Like, how do they do what they do, you know? So I'm kind of curious, like, what's your take on uh, your time with them? And uh, what do you feel like, from your experience, do you feel like you took away as being you know, this is like one of the things or a few different things that uh, really helped instill the ability, the amount of success you were able to experience in your career. And just kind of how would you answer that question? Because like I know I said, people are interested to, to know. Uh, I think for me personally, there was a large um, degree of accountability that Charlie Geyer offered me about very specific things. And uh, I went to Michigan in my undergrad with uh, some pretty big tone production complications and uh, I feel like I became a far more efficient trumpet player studying with Charles Duvall. And then uh, Charlie Geyer helped me uh, even even uh, refine those even further. And uh, he was really one of the first teachers I had to really look me in the eye and say, are you really doing what you think you're doing? And, uh, and even just that kind of accountability was very uh, essential to me to say, uh, you can receive all the compliments and you can always be the best player around, but uh, when it comes right down to it, are you really doing what you think you're doing? And uh, that, and and I, I had a good friend, a very close friend, uh, come and observe one of my lessons once. Uh, we went to our undergrad together and after the lesson, he pointed out something that I think is really true about Charlie. He said he's really one of the most unblocked people, just transparent, you know, get what you see is what you hear, which is what you get kind of person. And uh 
that made a very big impression on me. You know, um, sometimes from whatever circumstance we come from as a person or as a trumpet player, we try and put out our, our best produced version of ourselves. when I feel like Charlie, you know, he really had a way of looking beyond all those things and just saying, again, like, are you really doing what you think you're doing? And in my case, I wasn't. And, uh, and so I uh, had to take a good hard look deep again about uh, at what level am I doing some very fundamental things. And as a result of that, um, a lot of things improved. I, I had a lot of trouble playing in the, on the piccolo trumpet and playing in the upper register and things. And uh, those things, you know, even, even just asking that question and him giving me a few simple exercises really opened a it was like it opened the, the, a gateway into a new way of trumpet playing that I felt had raised the fundamental level of my trumpet playing on, on a pretty high level. Um, certainly there are commonalities, which I'm sure you and I and others of their students would, would find about, you know, minutia details, like making sure all your A's and E's in the staff are lowered appropriately <laughs> because of the length of tubing and everything. And, and believe me, I am certainly... I'll go ahead and use the word sharing those things with my students now for yeah. sure. Uh, there may be a degree of accountability if you ask my students uh, about that now. Um, <laughs> however, I would say that uh, those things do make a pretty big difference. You know, when you get down, as you know, from the, the when you get down to that level where people are trying to decide between number one, number two, or number three, you know, those those things do make a difference in terms of sound and everything. Um, but again, you know, there's a. I feel like both about uh, Barbara Butler and Charlie Charles Geyer that they have. Um, that they are trying to find that that part of uh, where a student optimizes their potential, and I don't think it's fair of me to say that Charlie is sort of has a cookie cutter approach. I know certainly my 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 buddies who study with him, and uh, you know my my good friend and, uh, and neighbor Matt Harding and I certainly talked a lot about him uh, when we played together in the Marine Band, and we have a lot of common stories. That's a big joke uh, about you know how, what's your version of this story, what's your version of this story, and they end up being identical because he's so accurate in the retelling. But he really did seek to optimize every student's potential, and he knew what I needed. He knew that I needed some accountability on a very fundamental level, but he knew that other people in the studio needed other things. And, uh, and I think he was really attentive to that. I've, I feel like Charlie and, and Barbara, too, from the lessons I had with her, they're very complete, responsible um, teachers in that way. It's hmm. an interesting way to put it. Um, one of the things I find, if I have found difficult, and as anyone who's listened to any of the things I've said for a while are aware what I find is that when I was with them, things were great because I would just do what they told me to do. But when I left, especially then when I got my job and you introduced, you know, needing to be prepared for what you were doing there, but then also kind of the freedom that comes from you get to make all of your own choices, it can be hard to maintain this kind of level of either improvement or, um, like you said, accountability mm -hmm. that you would receive. And I'm kind of curious, um, did you ever have any of those kinds of struggles of tr being, you know, the, sh the transition into being more, you know, autonomous or, you know, like you're running your own kind of thing? Or were you able to take some of those lessons that Charlie said and just implement them right away and kind of found that to be helpful right from the get-go? Uh, well, in my undergrad uh, experience, I was a, a double major in music education and music performance. And uh, and when you do, when you pursue a degree in music education, there are so many classes and the time constraints are so complicated that I feel like another thing that was uh, important about my time with Charlie Geyer was that he it was a time to just be focused on trumpet in, in particular now. And and I say that because uh, 
I tended to bring a, and still tend to bring a lot of ideas to the trumpet playing because because of my music education classes and my training, I'm trying, I'm always thinking about what else was going on in history at this point, what else was happening in the world, and you know how would you teach this lesson to a a, a group of students if you were running a band or an orchestra or things like that, and uh, and I think in my undergrad sometimes that that. Uh, my focus on the trumpet became, I'll just say, a little bit diluted because there wasn't time to have the time to sit and focus from a trumpet playing standpoint. How do I get from here to those ideas I have in my head? Uh, so um, after I finished studying with Charlie, I, I moved back with my parents in New Jersey for a couple months before I won my audition. And, you know, I was uh, freelancing and giving a lot of uh, lessons and taking, uh, you know, auditions and things like that. And I had a lot of time to think about those things he was saying. I, I really feel like... Uh, it didn't make it more difficult for me. It actually made it easier for me to focus and uh, and to channel all those creative ideas I had into a way that was going to make the trumpet playing part of my uh, part of that uh, that process uh, better and on a higher level. Yeah. Uh, one of the I, I know some people in the Marine Band right now, and I, I don't know if every single performing uh, military performing group is the same, but I imagine there's a level of like. You know, you're doing similar things in different places. Uh, I would love for you to try to speak to this if you are interested, because you're not there anymore. So maybe I'm not saying you have to say anything you don't want to, but um, they, they just talk about like it's such a shift from the way you were pre- you were preparing. It's like I'm learning all these excerpts and studying Mahler and Shostakovich, and it's such a shift to mm-hmm. playing a lot of marches and the, you know, the band literature that's sometimes orchestral in nature, but a lot of times it's not. Mm-hmm. And um, just having, you know, a number of different players around you. So there's like rotating and you're playing principal here or playing third. It's very different from my job, which is like first trumpet on everything. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? So I'm yes. kind of curious if you were interested in speaking to just like the reality of playing in the in the Marine Band from your 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 tenure there and kind of like what you felt like were some challenges that you encountered, or maybe even kind of, uh, they also talk about there's sometimes some freedom within your schedule to pursue some, you know, interesting and exciting artistic opportunities. And so I'm just curious if you were, uh, would want to speak a little bit to some of that and kind of how you managed and balanced and all that kind of stuff. I remember the job um, being continually inspiring in so many different ways and on so many different levels. Um, there is the level which uh, was even even when I was trying to decide whether or not to take the audition, you know, the title is United States Marine Band. So there is the question you begin with is, uh, is, is joining the United States military a lifestyle that I'm suited for? You know, how do you know that until you're there, right? Um, there's wearing a uniform, which you, you know, represents something bigger than yourself. Um, and in my time in the band, um, I really appreciated that uh, wearing that uniform was paying homage to so many important things. And I know that from playing at all those events, those ceremonies, um, the receptions, the parties that were in support of people who had come before us, Marines who had come before us, kind of standing on the shoulders of those people who had done great things for our country and and, uh, and just simply had offered their, their life and service to our country in some way for whatever length of time, you know, those things make a pretty big impression on you. Um, on one level, would it seem uh, like it is maybe not inspiring to sit in the corner of a ballroom and 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 play some music? It, perhaps it could seem like that until you're actually there and 
and you see the commandant of the Marine Corps, the, the four-star general who's responsible for maintaining the existence of the Marine Corps and caring for his Marines uh, on, and, and, and has a guest who is there who gave their life in service to the country, you know, and uh, or, or not gave their life, but uh, but lived their life in service to the country, you know, and to to be in that presence makes a very big impression on you. So uh and that's something I won't ever forget. And likewise, you know, not in the corner of a ballroom, but sometimes you find yourself on tour in a small town that you may not have gotten to in another circumstance. And you're there and you've already played the Armed Forces Medley X many times in your career, but on the particular tour you're on too. And and and, and literally to a time, every time you see a veteran stand when they hear their service song played, doesn't matter how old they are. Uh, sometimes they're even being helped out of a wheelchair, you know, by people around them that, that definitely makes an impression on you. Um, sometimes when you're by yourself in Arlington Cemetery sounding taps and, uh, and the weather is on the surface, something that you may not deem cooperative, um, <laughs> you are able to look beyond those circumstances because you are able to see literally. And, and in some cases, most of the cases you can literally hear the impression that you've made on a family, the comfort that you offer uh, by your role there. So um, there are those things that I didn't expect to affect me in the way that they affected me and provided me continual inspiration to do those things, to keep getting better and, you know, take that responsibility of being a United States Marine in, in a musical capacity seriously. Uh, but then, you know, we were talking about Charlie Geyer before and um, the things that I learned in working with him and, and, and with Barbara for that matter, how, how much easier it made to do the job. You know, uh, you were, referencing some of the differences about what you do and what I did in the band. Um, it's wonderful to be a, a member of a section of when I was there, 19 players who are fantastic players and even better than that, um, fantastic human beings. You know, I was continually inspired by my colleagues all the time, you know, and now I have the gift of still being inspired by them because of the band's fantastic social media outreach. And, uh, and I, I still draw inspiration from the way they played, uh, from how I continued to get better. And that's something, again, that Charlie and Barbara were, as you know, you know, uh, they treat their students like a big community and that we all learn from each other. Was there a healthy dose of, of competitive, uh, you know, uh, wanting to get better together? Of course there was. But, uh, but I always look back on my time at Eastman uh, and those people with uh, respect and admiration. I don't remember ever being a cutthroat kind of thing. And, and that's the way I found my time in the band also. Um, so when you have the opportunity to play uh, solo cornet or assistant solo cornet or third cornet or second cornet in some circumstances in the band, then you have the opportunity to observe and hear how other people function in those capacities. Um, and, and then, like you mentioned, there are, there, you know, playing in the band is playing everything. It's being a soloist. It's being a section player. It's being an orchestral player. It's being a, a member of a concert band. It's being a chamber musician. Um, it's, it's being, uh, able to be flexible because, um, an important event in the world has happened and you happen to be at the white house of all places. So you need to be patient and wait an extra hour sometimes or, or half an hour because you're at the white house and important things happen there. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and, and you don't, you know, uh, you don't question it. You just say, okay, this is the situation and I'm going to, and I'm going to move on. And, uh, and, th and then, yeah, there are the, the other things that you mentioned also about, um, the kinds of music that we play too, uh, you know, even on one level, you know, knowing the difference between how cornet functions in a Sousa march versus how cornet functions in a Fillmore march is interesting because being a cornet player in a band is a lot like being a soloist, you know, and when I look back at my time in the band playing cornet, which I hadn't really done a lot of until I got into the United States Marine Band, I really felt like it raised a level of my solo playing tremendously. So, that's just a snapshot of some of those things uh, that you were referencing, I think. 
Yeah, it's so cool that you have, you know, just such like a, a length of, of ex- or I guess the amount of experiences you've had to really pull from. And um, I, what, like being in the White House, you know, just like that's so crazy for me. You know, I, I've, I, like I said, I have a few friends in there and they'll be like, yeah, we were like at the White House playing some, you know, a, an event or something like that. It's like, that's, that's, that's really just crazy. And, right. um, you know, seeing the president or or whatever. I, I'm curious. Do you have any memories? I mean, I'm sure you have a whole b- a bunch of them, but are there any that especially stick out? As uh, you even kind of mentioned them, just being in the presence of some of these people who have done such amazing things. But um, are there any other ones that kind of stick out to you as being especially memorable, or mm-hmm. for for whatever reason it may have been? I have a few. Uh, one I was thinking of in particular, uh, my younger brother is a professional tuba player and uh, he was in the band with me for about 11 years. And he now lives in uh, Greencastle, Indiana, where he's a member of the uh, the Army National Guard Band in Indianapolis. Uh, but once the, the both of us were sent to the White House uh, as to sound honors uh, for, um, uh, a, I believe it was a, a, a soldier was being, um, a soldier's family was being given the Medal of Honor, uh, he he was being given the Medal of Honor posthumously, and so his family was there to receive it. Uh, it was, this was during George W. Bush's time as president. And so Paul and I were there as part of a brass quintet to uh, render honors for the president uh, as part of the ceremony. And so in that circumstance, um, you may have seen similar uh, ceremonies on television where the president speaks on a podium and there's a long red carpet. What you don't see is that behind on that red carpet behind the president, off, just off camera to the right is where the musicians stand, and just off camera to the left is where the president stands waiting to be cued to come down the red carpet and appear at that podium. So uh, when it came time, you know, the president was meeting with this person's family, and it was probably, a, a, I would guess, a somewhat somber occasion because this person was not there, obviously, and and, uh, and it was, you know, there to celebrate in some way the service and this, this dedication and everything. And so at the time of the ceremony happened, um, the family is escorted into the room, everybody's in place. And then there's a moment while everybody's getting seated where the president is waiting for the queue to walk down the red carpet. And so they open the doors to the blue room and President Bush was on one side of the carpet and the five of us were on the other side of the carpet, just looking straight at each other, <laughs> just waiting for the cue to happen, you know, and uh, here he was just meeting with this soldier's family. And it, again, like I said, must have been a, a somewhat somber, uh, heavy moment and everything. And then he looked up and saw the five of us standing there looking at him and he was looking at us. And it was like the one part of that ceremony that he could uh, maybe just relax a little bit because he knew he wasn't on camera. Nobody else was looking. And he waved to us and gave us a thumbs up and, uh, you really don't think when you're growing up in rural New Jersey that you're ever going to have the circumstance to look the president of the United States in the eye <laughs> and have that moment, you know, and to share it with your brother in a, in a professional circumstance like that. And and to also just be aware, and that's another thing I remember from studying with Barbara and Charlie, that things happen and that flexibility of things happen on stage and you have to be able to focus and concentrate regardless of the circumstance around you. To have one eye on the president and and return his glance and return his gesture, but have the other eye on his aide, because when that cue comes, you cannot be late in sounding the four ruffles and flourishes, followed by the president's announcement and then the uh, hail to the chief. So uh, it was an extraordinary moment that I'll never forget. Um, the other one I think is somewhat humorous. I told this at my retirement, and uh, one of the first times I ever went to the White House, we were there as part of a working lunch um, <clears throat> for the Prince of Denmark and some other royalty from uh, uh, Europe 
and President Clinton and his wife were having a working lunch. And at that time, they were using trumpet players to sound fanfares before the president walked into the room. So we had an honors band there. And then, then we were going to uh, play music, maybe even hail to the chief. And then two of us were to step out of this, the formation of the honors band and run and be in position to play these fanfares. So it was a quick thing. But I was new. They gave me these fanfares on a card to put on my lyre on my trumpet and uh so at the event, you know, we, we played what we were going to play. And then the, the White House aide literally grabbed my shoulder and was shoving me down the hallway to get in place so the president didn't have to wait, right? So I was trying to get my music on my stand, on my lyre. <laughs> she's pushing me down and she's she grabs both of my shoulders and she positions me and turns me around. And I had literally just gotten the music into my lyre. I put my horn up and she she pointed to me right as I had finished that. So there was no time to even think at all. And so uh, my section leader was on one side of the door and I was on the other. So she pointed to me, I, I played, I, and it ends on a high C. And like I said, there really wasn't even time to even barely form an embouchure. So I kind of unloaded on this this fanfare and was feeling really proud of myself that I got the high C out despite the music being kind of fanned out in front of me. And I put my horn down to go to the position of attention. But what I hadn't seen behind the music was that they had positioned the president, Mrs. Clinton, into place right as she acute us. And Mrs. Clinton's face was like about a foot from the edge of my bell, <laughs> which I would have no way of knowing, you know? And so, uh, I was mortified. I mean, I went white as a sheet, you know, and because I put my horn down and I was basically looking straight at her where I had literally just played this fanfare directly <laughs> at her, you know? And, uh, and so I went to attention. I'm sure I was as white as a sheet, but I looked over and and there was President Clinton just giving me a huge thumbs up, like he was nodding yes, and he gave me the huge thumbs up. So wow. I went from being worried that I wasn't going to have a job right after I joined to uh, feeling a little bit better about it. But but from then on, of course, the trumpet players were turned around to face into the room <laughs> away from the president and his wife. But uh, but how how do you choose the memories? I mean, that you know, those are um, interesting stories. But then there are other times too. Every every you know, right now during the White House under non COVID times. The orchestra is playing maybe uh, as many as 20 or 30 or 40 receptions at the White House. And when people come into the, that space where the orchestra is playing, it really does set an atmosphere. It sets a tone of collegiality and and working together. And uh, I, I was at the White House once for the state dinner of, of the President Macron and his and his wife from France, you know, and they, they came in and our assignment was to play right as they were walking by to an elevator and going upstairs to have dinner. And... Um, they stopped and listened to us and the colonel finished conducting what was supposed to be traveling music and he turned around and there's the president of the United States and his wife and there's President Macron and his wife just standing there listening and they and so he said keep playing you know so we played a little concert for them just standing right there wow. and, uh, and and that was a moment where you really do feel like okay you know here's the president of France and I am representing my country you know um, and that was a pr- that was a proud moment yeah those are very good stories. That was, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is going to be a weird segue because it's like, you know, you told these these stories of of kind of the, all those happened as a result of the position, right? Like you're in this band and you were chosen to, you know, play the fanfare right at uh, Hillary's head. And <laughs> did you ever audition for or did you ever seek to audition for other orchestras or any other opportunities like that? Or were you just like, I'm in the band, I enjoy this, I'm gonna, you know, live out my tenure here and then, you know, find a different professional, you know, way to go about it? Uh so right before I took my Marine Band audition, I had a uh I took a Navy band audition in the same week. 
and there was a spot open in the Navy band and two spots open in the Marine band. And, and during that time in my life, I was just taking anything I could get to and was, that was open. So I hadn't really met with a lot of success at all, uh, taking auditions for orchestras. Um, looking back on that time in my life, I think, um, for whatever reason, even though I had had received a good education and was privileged to study with very fine trumpet players who were very honest with me and direct with me, I hadn't made that leap in my head about considering myself in that same on that same level. You know, what I tell my students now is really spend some time picturing yourself already a member of the Chicago Symphony, already a member of the Detroit Symphony, the Columbus Symphony, where, wherever you're auditioning, you know, so that you don't feel like you're climbing up into a group, but you're simply moving across and joining a group of people that you consider yourself peers with already. That So that, that mindset walking in is a lot different, I think. And uh, in my own circumstance, I remember walking out to many orchestral auditions and feeling like I didn't belong there still, despite having studied with good people and uh and playing somewhat well and i think that's a that was an important thing to look back and realize because when i walked down to the marine barracks stage to to play my audition there i really did feel like i belonged i had been fascinated with the military when i was young and here i was at this historic military post and people were wearing uniforms and but i was playing repertoire that i had always enjoyed playing it, it just seemed the right convocation or the right circumstance, you know, confluence of a lot of circumstances coming together where I felt like I belonged there. And it was the right place. I knew knew some trumpet players in the band and what really good people they are and what a great thing it would be to work with them. And uh, so that's why I'm encouraging my students now, you know, try and think beyond the trumpet circumstances if you're being tested, but but as an opportunity to, to join a group of people you already belong with. Uh, right, so that's I a think, great that's a great perspective, I think. Um, it's funny you you talk you you say that even though you were studying with Barbara and Charlie, arguably to you know they've had a lot of success with their students, um, that you would still feel like you couldn't picture yourself belonging. And maybe I, I feel like for me it was the it's the opposite. It's like when I was with Charlie and and, and Barbara specifically, Barbara. That's what I study with most of the time. It's like sort of as tangentially related, like because I studied with Barbara and because Barbara was like, you're ready to do this. I had this level of confidence walking into auditions that mm -hmm. I sort of lost when I got away from that, you know, because I didn't have Barbara kind of guiding me and and, and helping me understand like what's, what's the expectation or how should things go, those types of things. Sort of what I really appreciate about her is like making the final call, so to speak, about like, this is how you should do it. Like there's so many different ways you could phrase things and volumes you could play and all that tempos and stuff like that to, to have someone be like, do it this way. Yeah. And, and there's some room for interpretation in there certainly, but she's sort of got, that was really helpful. And I feel like I lost some of that authority basically. Mm. Um, and then obviously, as you know, like that's been a lot of my search then is like trying to develop processes where I can reclaim some of the authority, at least in the way that I can continue to, improve. So it's, I've sort of had the opposite experience, I feel like, from what you described. Um, so you're at Cincinnati now. Um, you were just talking about your students and sort of just the general, especially related to auditions, how you encourage them to um, think of themselves as ready for these opportunities and able to do it. Um, what other types of things do you are sort of like your top value? You know what I mean? Like what above all, what, what do you hope that they walk away with? And of course we want to build complete everything, you know, but like, what do you feel like are one or two things that are the most important for you? Uh, at, uh, I guess if that's the way to say it. 
I would wish for my students to be effective uh, musical communicators. And uh, in our time together, I'm hoping that they develop a rich vocabulary of uh, musical language to support um, uh, thoughtful musical ideas. So, for example, I, I have uh, we have many students who are preparing for the Marine Band's upcoming audition at the end of January for trumpet audition. And they have a list, you know, and I'm encouraging them to start uh, maybe if you picture like what an hourglass looks at, you know, like there's the like the wider upper part and the narrow middle part and then the wider lower part, you know, begin with the macro so that you have an idea of what Hindemith is and, and is Hindemith distinct from other composers or do you have sort of a general German way that you play versus a general German uh, Italian way you play, you know, what does make Hindemith unique from Beethoven or Mahler or Strauss or things like that. So there's some Hindemith on that audition. There's some Charles Ives on that audition. There's Charlier and Respighi and some other things. And uh, to have um, interesting and thoughtful ideas about what those things are and how you relate to them. So that when you get down into the middle part of the hourglass, when you're scrubbing and getting more micro from the macro down to the micro of like, I want to raise those, the levels of all those things, uh, is my articulation where I want it that fits into that macro idea, you know, do I have a general uh, staccato way of playing or, or is my Ives variations on America a little too close to my Stravinsky Petrushka, which is a little too close to my Debussy or my Ravel Piano Concerto, you know, those, in my opinion, are three distinct styles. Um, maybe they're somewhat related, but, but maybe they're, they're distinct also, you know, and, uh, and how many times in our circumstance have we sought to just be clear or to be crisp or to be whatever, rather than, you know, what was Charles Ives the man like, who was a little boy growing up in civil war era, Washington, DC, who would have heard a lot of cornet playing and a lot of bands coming through the town because his dad was in the Marine band and, you know, maybe that has a specific sound to it when he's writing uh, this organ piece, which originally eventually got set to uh, band by William Schumann. You know, like maybe there is a specific way that that sounds. And maybe that's a little more closely related to the 1911 version of Petrushka because that was originally conceived of for cornet also, you know. So, again, the macro idea of this is cornet and this is Ives, you know, the micro thing of is my is my cl articulation clear enough to support that idea? And then eventually... Um, closer to the audition, getting back into that lower part of the hourglass, back to the macro of now I've trained myself and I've I've scrubbed those things and I've made sure my clarity is there. But 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 now go back to the larger vision of the the musical idea again because you you've trained those individual things to be automatic and where you're not obsessing about individual details, but they're part of that the way you do things uh, uh, again. So so that's how we're preparing for auditions and things. Um, again, having that rich vocabulary of language to support these thoughtful musical ideas. Yeah, that's a cool, that's a cool uh, way to describe it. You know, macro, micro, macro. Um, mm -hmm. It's a, uh, yeah, and and like having, I mean, I, I, I'm starting to understand I kind of specialize in the, the micro part of it, right? Like I have so many ideas about how to get that micro to be as efficient as possible. Um, but you're right. I'm, I'm, and I, it's even in my own playing, I'm starting to understand now, like that I've sort of gotten some strategies about that. Like I need to work my way back up and make sure that I understand what I'm trying up to apply it to mm -hmm. musically. And then, you know, that last part of it, just refining the presentation certainly, but yeah, that first step is sometimes like not with the instrument. Would you agree? It's more like listening and score study. And like you said, even knowing the, the historical context, what, I mean, how do you, how much time, I mean, this is, this 
this is kind of a, a way that I think about it. So it may not be the way you think about it. And please just change it if you don't. Mm-hmm. But kind of how much time do you spend with this? Like, how do you know, like, not that you would ever maybe leave that step, but how do you know you've done enough, so to speak, if that's a way to describe it? Right. Well, um, as a student of the instrument, you know, as somebody who, uh, in my case, lives my life, you know, wanting to have these ideas, these musical ideas, and the, my vehicle is on on the trumpet or the cornet or whatever, you know, um, I am researching these ideas because they're of interest to me. You know, I, I ha- history happens to be a passion of mine. I I, I like studying history. Um, in my circumstance at the school, I have these discussions with my students and they seem burdened by trying to remember dates sometimes and, and history becomes sort of a scary thing because they feel like being tested all the time. I'm going to remember dates. So we tend to talk about ideas instead and, and images, you know, like uh, I have two wonderful daughters and I remember taking them to Gettysburg, you know, and taking them to museums here in the Washington DC area and, and just getting an impression about what life was like in certain circumstance or what an instrument may be, a, may have been like and things. And so those are things that fascinate me, you know, um, again, uh, looking back on my time in the band, it, it's almost like uh, you're giving a voice to a circumstance that was something that was long ago. Again, you know, um, one of the last cornet solos I played with the band was 2015, and we played uh, a Kerbadale Clark solo called Nereid. And when I was on tour with the band, we went to the Sousa archives at the, at the Illinois band building, University of Illinois Harding band building. And, and, uh, that's where Herbert Earl Clark's papers and things were all donated and you can research them online. Um, but he had all the band parts, uh, to narrate in this box. And, and so I purchased a research copy of Nariad and they, they, uh, sent me an email with all the band parts and I put them into finale and, Colonel Fettig was gracious enough to extend an invitation to perform this with the band. And I could not find any record of any performance of Nariad except one when Herbert L. Clark took over his last job as the director of the Long Beach Municipal Band in California. I couldn't find any record past 1923 of it ever being performed. So in 2015, at that first rehearsal, I remember thinking, it's almost like this, this music has been asleep and dormant in this box for almost a hundred years, not quite a hundred years, but almost a hundred years, 90 some years. Right. And here at this first rehearsal, it's like alive again. And there are live people playing this music, which is lovely. You know, he was a, I think very gifted orchestrator, a lot like Sousa was, and it was very rich sounding and it is very rich sounding and it is exciting. And it's different than other solos that he wrote probably because of the time in his maturity as a composer where he wrote it. And, uh, and so I felt a responsibility. We talk about this interest in history, like to research it appropriately, to give it its just due so that when it does come alive again, that you have the readiness skills to support that idea and, and inspire others to picture themselves on that pier in Long Beach, listening to you or him play. Yeah. Gosh, it's, it's quite inspiring to hear you, <laughs> to hear you talk like that. It's, it's really cool. Um, I'm going to, can I play devil's advocate for a second? Please. Um, one thing I would find to be difficult is like feeling like I have to learn it all, all at once, right? Mm. Rather than just sort of like each time I would do something or come back to something or just in general, just casually digesting things regularly, you know? Mm. I mean, I would say that the second version of that would be better better but i know that especially when you're preparing for an audition you can feel like i gotta i gotta get all the information and learn it rather than it being part of a process so how do you encourage 
I'm sure other people struggle with that too. So how do you encourage people to do this kind of work, but kind of be okay with, you might not get all of the answers right away. You know what I mean? How do you right. encourage that? Um, early in my Marine Corps career, we were invited to attend um, uh, a lecture by the commandant at the time, General Jones, who uh, eventually became President Obama's national security advisor. And one thing he said really struck me. And he said that uh, he didn't want his Marines and his Marine Corps to strive for perfection. Uh, because in his opinion, there there was no perfection, but there was always the opportunity to do better. And he felt like in his career, which began as a young Marine in uh, in Vietnam, and in the and, and being sent out on in small patrols, you know, young lieutenant, that that you could always do a better job. You could always and and he said one of the things he learned by being a young lieutenant in Vietnam is he was they were paired up frequently with the Republic of uh, uh, the Vietnamese Marine Corps Marines who spent most of their morning or a part of their morning always perfecting or working towards perfecting their uh, martial arts. And so General Jones is the person who stood up the martial arts program in the United States Marine Corps. But he said their goal was never to be a perfect martial arts person. It was to keep working at attaining or towards that goal, accepting the fact that, you, that, that perfection may be unrealistic, you know. And, uh, and I remember taking away from that 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 was an inspiring thing to hear from someone who had achieved the rank of four-star general in the Marine Corps, that you could just always work at getting better. You know, um, for the students at CCM, we're talking about, you know, like the the image of those interlocking rings for the uh, the Olympics. You know, if you flip that mm -hmm. up on its side, and those rings were interlocked so that you know you were constantly circling and climbing up. You know, maybe sometimes circling back and picking up more information then going up to the next ring and then going up to the next ring. And then you can keep climbing, adding more rings. It becomes a nice link and a chain. Uh, but do you ever really get to a destination, you know? Uh, and then also drawing on my, my teachers, uh, my teacher, Charles Duvall from uh, when he was at university of Michigan, when I studied with him, he was reminding me that he had colleagues who felt like at certain orchestras, they had achieved a certain strata and they could then coast. And he always felt like he was more inspired by his colleagues who even despite whatever orchestra they were in, always wanted to get better. And I uh, felt like that was a really good life lesson for me to hear that, that no matter where you are, you can always want to get better. And I think as, as far as the research goes, the preparation goes, I think releasing um, yourself from the burden of trying to be perfect from an achieving a strata standpoint and embracing the journey of self-discovery and enrich, enriching knowledge, you know, that's, that's something that continually inspires me. And the ing part of the enriching is important because that's an active process, right? Mm. So you are not enriched. You are looking for an enriching experience, something that will be uh, an active process then. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess to speak as bluntly or as openly as possible, this is something I've really struggled with on my career from this sort of strata position. It's like, I will put in as much work or more work than anybody else. But it's sort of for this like end goal thing to say like I achieved, like I won this job or I know this or I can play this. 
And then that being the point is like the attaining of the thing, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of like what you're talking about, which is a very process oriented, like we shift our focus, like you're saying, really, I love the way you said that releasing yourself from the burden of being perfect and having all the answers and rather understanding that a, dev- a constant devotion to the process will get you where you want to go, except right. you're probably, you might not hate yourself <laughs> in the process, I think, <laughs> you know? May I add so, something else to what I said? Uh, uh, toward the end of my time in the, in the Marine Corps, um, in a continuing effort to uh, stay under my weight limit. I joined a CrossFit gym here in uh, Northern Virginia. And one of the things I found interesting about the union or the, the, the similarities, I guess, between learning how to lift weights efficiently and safely and being a trumpet player is that uh, you can stand and observe the way a coach or some other athlete in the CrossFit gym gets weight off the floor, the macro uh, observing of that. And then the micro of the coach comes behind me and says, if you move your foot this just this way or move your elbows or whatever, just this way, that might make all the difference in your technique. But then getting the thing that always helped me get the weight off the floor was getting back to that macro of now my foot is in the right position. Now I have a knowledge of where my elbows need to go. Now I need to go back to that image of walk up to the bar, grab the bar and just get it up above your head or something like that. Um, but then again, you know, that's not perfection, right? Because you can get the weight off the floor, but then you can always put another plate on it once you're, once you're honing your technique. And then once you got that other plate on, well, you can always put another plate on it, <laughs> right? Yeah. And then uh, yeah. you'd be inspired by the guy behind you who's got, you know, in my case, it usually seemed like he or she had seven or eight more plates on than my plate. But, but that was always <laughs> inspiring to me because again, like my goal wasn't to lift the heaviest weight of the gym. My goal was always to remember like Barbara Butler used to say all the time, um, is your goal to just be in the Chicago Symphony or is your goal to play with the best musicians possible, the best music possible in the best way you can play it? And I remember that when I was trying to decide which auditions to take and where to make my living. And and once I landed a place where to keep, I was, I found myself in the United States Marine Band playing really good music, you know, Bach. I played Handel. I played Beethoven. I played Holst. I played Sousa. I played Stravinsky. I played Debussy. I played Ravel. That's really good music. And the people I was working with are the best people I know still. And um, that inspired me to want to play the, all those, all that music with those great people at the best way that I could. You know, um, it wasn't, and going back to the CrossFit analogy, it wasn't my goal to just lift the most weight in the gym. It was to be healthy and to be healthier and then to keep, you know, wanting to strive uh, towards that goal, you know. Yeah, I totally agree now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there was a period of my time where I didn't agree, you know, and I think my perception is the trade-off is again just like you can experience success both ways, but I find that um you know, like what you're talking about, a focus on the, like what you're talking about, you can always add another plate. You can always add another plate. Like a focus on the process is un- essentially unending mm-hmm. because using the gym analogy, unless you've hit your genetic limit, you can always add more. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes like, okay, well, I'm going to be doing this for a long time. But like I said, on an instrument, it's only recently that I'm starting to open my understanding a little bit that what I'm seeking to do is a five, a 10, a 15 year goal. Mm -hmm. It's not, but it used to be, here's an example. I told this story recently on a podcast. 
uh, Barbara, I was trying to work on low playing and she was like, Hey, you should get the Snedecore low etude book. I love this book now, but this, she's the one that introduced it to me to it. And she said, you're going to play this first page, what I call low register drills. I play them all the time still. And she's like, I just want you to play one of these etudes per day. And I was like, well, you know what? If I played one of them, I'd get better. But mm -hmm. if I played all of them mm -hmm. every day, I'll get better that much faster. And like, no mm -hmm. one told me that's not how it works. <laughs> like, yeah. you don't actually get better faster. That's not more doesn't necessarily equal faster. Right. To to some extent, it can. Um, but what you're talking about, and like what I understand now. I think is actually the only way to do it and to be able to sustain it long term is you're taking, like you said, you're taking the pressure off of yourself to figure it all out and rather just putting it on being a little bit better each day. Right. And I, I, I'm also careful to remind students that, uh, that doesn't mean, um, releasing yourself from the burden of perfection does not mean no standards and it does not mean, uh, no perfection or, or, or not getting better at all. It simply means uh, take that barrier, that yoke off that may have been preventing you from progressing at all. You know, likewise, how many of us as trumpet players really felt like we were working really hard and really, you know, pumping a lot of wind through the horn when, when, if you were to study what physiologically was most likely happening, we had closed off that valve in our throat, you know, so it feels like you're blowing a lot of air that you're really just blowing some air at a closed valve in your throat, you know? And, uh, you know, I think sometimes in the work ethic part of it, the same thing, you put a lot of effort in, but you've got that yoke or that wall that you've, uh, unnecessarily, burden yourself with called perfection in front of it. So, uh, so allow the things to keep flowing, just like you'd allow the wind to eventually keep flowing if you open, open your throat a little bit. So, yeah, this is interesting. This is, this is tech, like textbook fixed mindset, growth mindset kind of thing. Mm. It's very interesting that we're using different language for it, but it's very along those lines. So, you know, you've spoken to it, but maybe I'll ask the direct question to see if there's any more aspects to it. How do you encourage this mindset? How do you encourage that it's not about proving yourself, it's not about getting to a certain place, um, and rather encouraging, you know, you've spoken to it a little bit, so maybe it'll be a similar answer, but trying to get it so people can see that, A, you can get better. Like, we know that. The brain can change. We can get better. We can grow in lots of different ways. But B, getting someone to believe that that's possible for themselves, especially if they struggle to really believe that anything can change. How do you encourage that? Uh as a teacher, I ask more questions than I give out answers. So um, uh, you were talking before about Barbara, Barbara saying, you know, play it this way. And, uh, and, and she has great advice. I certainly was the recipient of m m a, a very large quantity of great advice from her, which I still cite, you know, in my lessons and everything. But in terms of what you're asking about here, I ask the students more questions. Is, is this what you want? Is this the articulation that you want? Is this the intonation? Is this the sound that you want? I have found to a student that uh, asking them the question simply is, is this the sound you want or how does this fit your macro vision of Hindemith? Um, many of them, or I said to a student, all of them, some uh, are in the habit of not really having that opinion yet, you know, and, uh, and asking them that question then opens up that curiosity inside their mind so that they are reflecting more ab about how they prepare, about how they uh, play. So I, I feel like, a student needs to have that reflection um, uh, habit. And 
but I also try and lead by example. You know, that's another thing I got from from being uh, blessed with good leaders in the Marine Corps was that uh, the 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 Marine leaders always led by example. They lived their life, you know, so that they weren't ever asking their Marines to do something that they weren't willing to do themselves, or live their lives a way that they weren't willing to live themselves. So. Uh, I, I try and model, uh, in addition to asking those questions, I try and model it myself so that they hopefully see that uh, and hear that I'm not simply asking them to do something that didn't work for me. Um, and in, in a sense, it's sharing, you know, what, what worked for me in that way. So uh, I think that's how I would answer that. Uh, I, I want my students to be thoughtful about it. So like you were saying earlier, when you get on your own, when you get to your job, um, you have a thought process that you go through and, and hopefully you just keep asking those questions for the rest of your life, you know? And, uh, so that when you're having a conversation with somebody, when they come to visit you at your studio, you know, you have a lot of things to talk about and they go beyond the trumpet too. You know, I mean, Hindemith, we talked about Hindemith a bunch already, you know, uh, fascinating individual who lived during fascinating times and under fascinating circumstances. And we could talk probably for a long time about political things, you know, and, um, uh, cultural things. And, you know, Charles Ives, there's a whole history lesson or many, many history lessons that you could talk about, about Charles Ives because of the unique time that he lived. And his father was in the Marine band. His brothers were in the Marine band. You know, Herbert L. Clark had two brothers, uh, in the, in the Sousa civilian band. So there's, there's always all these other things beyond that, but you know, then how are they affecting the other things in your trumpet playing, uh, in your cornet playing in that? Yeah, that's good. I, I remember, observing that obviously those lessons that i sat in that you were yeah you were probing you were trying to get them to be thinking about the process and um i remember even thinking there were times where i would be like now is the time that i would be like here's what you should do mm -hmm. but you still continued to probe i thought that was i thought that was just a, that was interesting that that's that seems to me to be something that's very important to you it is, is that and i'll tell you why to think I, uh, I want them to think because I also have observed that not every student has the same interpretation of something that I do. And you talk about tongue level. I mean, uh, what a polarizing topic, the position <laughs> of your tongue ends up being in the discussion of the pedagogy of trumpet. And some people say syllables and tongue position have no, no, you know, or play with the tongue more forward in your mouth. And I mean, there's, there's literally zillions of ways that you could interpret that. Right. And where is the actual back of your tongue? Is it near the roof of your mouth? Is it kind of near the back of the roof of your mouth? Is it actually down in your throat? I mean, and, and because there are so many ways that you can misinterpret something because we use verbal things to describe um, sounds that it's potential, it has the potential to send a student in a direction that may not be as efficient. And so if I ask them questions, then sometimes they they land at the realization that I've already landed to it. I could have handed it to them initially, but the opportunity for them to misinterpret something I say would be great, in my opinion, in that circumstance. So maybe it takes a little bit longer for them to get there, but eventually they land on it in their own terms, which I think would be ultimately more successful for them. So, Well, and I, I couldn't agree more, actually. In my teaching, I have I've started to... Like when I used to hear somebody play, I'd be like, well, here's what I think is going on, you know, but now it's like, well, how long have you been working on this? And like, what are you right. trying? Like, I start to ask a lot more questions. I mean, again, maybe a different ratio, but like that's that asking those questions is super important to get some context about what like for that exact reason. I, I also think it's interesting and I'd love your take on um, not just that you're trying to do this or the importance of this, but if you see how you see it, how long maybe you see it taking to manifest or or whatever, but like, this is actually what it is to practice, right? Like being mm -hmm. able to 
play and then interpret that data by asking the right questions so that you can do something productive next, I think is like at the core of what practicing is. And so with helping students walk through the process of asking questions, you're empowering them to, like you said, to be able to do that for themselves. But it does take time, obviously, to be able to do that on your own. Uh, I mean, this isn't, there's no way you could say like, it's about this amount of time, but do you see students being able to do this more for themselves? And then when they're own playing, like what's the result? Do you notice like big leaps and big gains? Or is it more just more enjoyment in the process? Like kind of what do you see the effect of this being? I think all of those things. I think uh, the, obviously all the students are different. And, and at CCM, we have many different levels of students too. We have uh, freshmen and we have doctoral students, artist diploma students and everything. And so some of that is age, some of that is experience, some of that is the circumstance they come from. Uh, for example, we have freshmen who come from highly competitive, large Band programs, and we have freshmen who come from band programs that were not large, like the one that I came from in uh, rural New Jersey. And so, some of that is, you know, the circumstance and your mindset coming into it. Um, I have found that when their mind comes alive like that, when you start asking those questions or sharing questions that they can ask themselves, that the process is quick. You know, and uh, all of our students at CCM are bright and they are inquisitive. And they realize that I'm not there to shake my finger at them and to slap, pound my fist on a desk to say, it's not right yet. It's not right yet. It's not right yet. In a sense, I'm giving them a voice to say, you are an artist already. You are a a thoughtful, intelligent person already. And all we're doing now is, is starting to ask ourselves questions that's going to allow the trumpet player who's already in you, or you wouldn't be here to come out and meet that macro thing that you've got an idea for. And I think that speeds the process up a lot. When we talk about releasing ourselves from that burden of perfection, they start to embrace, once they release that burden of perfection yoke, they start to embrace that process, which I think happens quickly. And, I, and you see immediate results. And then it becomes, again, you know, uh, then you're able to ask the other questions of like, okay, well, you're doing this and it's successful. And now you're playing with a beautiful sound. And now you're playing with, or a more beautiful sound, I should say. Now you're playing with an articulation that's this. But now, can we have a discussion about all the other people who are going to be at that audition who are also going to have a beautiful sound and play with the articulation and in time? What's going to get you into that final group of two or three you know what's going to make them want to start buying oranges when they want thought they were going to buy apples that day you know like you can do that um but if they're in the habit of asking themselves all those questions that we've been talking about i feel like that process speeds up quickly then because then they it's like a mindset shift exactly like you were talking about before you know their their mind shifts from i am trying to be perfect or i'm trying to achieve a strata of success to i am now releasing the artist that's in there that I that I had been asking the wrong set of questions for before, or a less efficient set of questions for before. And yeah, what I love about this conversation is that this is like for the rest of their life, right? Like yes. it's starting a process that will continue right. forever. So, I mean, I, I don't know if this is true for everybody, but sometimes I can get the sense that like, we're trying to pack as much learning as we can into four years or into six years because like that's the time where we're coached and there's all sorts of, you know, like sports, like athletes, you know, they have coaches and coaches and coaches and, you know, a lot of other disciplines, you know, you can find other people to help you throughout your career or maybe you have a boss or whatever. But in, mm-hmm. in our field, once you're out there, you're on your own, you're, you got to have all the answers, you know, or it can feel that way. And sure so can. the ability to say, I don't have all the answers, but I know how to ask good questions, I think becomes more important than almost any other th- skill. Right. You know, and, and, um, 
how many times have we all found ourselves in circumstances where somebody comes in and they're, they're trying to tell you how to do it their way, right? You know, that can be very um, alarming sometimes, you know? And so uh, when you have an open mind and when you have a flexibility, like Charlie had asked me to consider when I went to study with him at Eastman and the other Charlie at uh, Charles Duvall at Michigan had also encouraged us to have that open mind, then you fit into many circumstances, right? You know, so uh, it, it would be, uh, I think inappropriate for me to go into a circumstance where there's an orchestra that has a specific tradition and a way of doing things and, and say, well, this is, I've learned all the knowledge. I've packed all those things in. Like you've said, I know how this goes and do it this way when there might be a specific tradition involved, you know, and, and that way that that orchestra does it. And when you're not open-minded and flexible like that, you know, are you really being respectful to their traditions? Um, there could potentially be a conflict and wanting you to come back and, and respect those traditions a second time and everything. And so um, I feel like uh, those, those questions allow you um, the readiness to then go and, and, and be coachable. You know, I mean, uh, you were talking about NFL teams and uh, how many of those NFL teams like uh, the Patriots look for coachable players, right? Not necessarily always the top draft pick or always the number one, but they want people who are coachable, right? And, and are going to uh, work well within a system and be flexible like that. And I feel like uh, in my experience, you know, that w- that was something that, that, you know, there's an interview round in the Marine Band's audition. And the, the, the person who was conducting that interview round tried to get a sense of the, the person and would this be a good fit for the section, you know? And it did come up in discussions sometimes, you know, when, when they were talking about trumpet things and at a certain point, the Colonel would turn it over to whomever was doing the interview and say, what about the person, you know? Because in the Marine Band, you you are on tour for 32 days, you know? And when I first joined the Marine Band, you were on tour for seven weeks and you're living with another person, you're on a bus, you know, or you find you might find yourself in uh, ceremonies, like I said, at the White House where there could be a delay and now you're in a room with people and you, you want to be someone to be a, a, a good person to be around, but also a good player when you get out, you know, when people are frustrated and you know, the weather may not be cooperating on a certain level, that you have that kind of flexibility to work with someone else, so... Yeah, I totally agree. Um, one of the things that I told you this already, uh, one of the things that was really striking to me when I came to visit was, uh, A, how sort of familial, uh, at least the people that I hung out with, familial you and your studio are. Like, there's obviously a clear delineation of, you know, you're the teacher, they're the students, but then there's also a clear, like, you, you know, care about each other as human beings as mm-hmm. well, and you spend time together and I think that's super important uh, for, you know, experience, you know, and then obviously me feeling like I sort of fit into that, you know, just everybody welcomed me. I felt like, you know, I was part of the crew, so to speak. How do you, uh, I mean, maybe if it, maybe it is just like spending some time and doing that, but of what importance is that for you? I mean, studying with Barbara and Charlie, that was how it was, you know, that's a big part of why I think they're successful too. So how do you go about cultivating that? Um, And one of the other questions, so I'm going to ask a two-parter, how do you go about Mm -hmm. cultivating that? And then the other one is what, what, what happens to people when they leave and they lose that, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's such a, I think that's such a hard thing is we, at least for myself, I was like, I want to play music with my friends for the rest of my life. This would be yeah. so amazing. And then when I left and it was a job, I have good colleagues, but we're not, it's not that, you know, mm-hmm. it's not that kind of familial vibe. Like we go home and do our lives and things like that. Right. And so like, how do, you know, how do we cope or deal with the loss of that kind of familial vibe? Um, that's just a sort of a side thing I'm curious for your thoughts on. 
Yeah, I'm going to answer that part of the question first, if it's okay. And I think, uh, you know, when you leave CCM, you're not really leaving CCM. You know, you're still going to be part of the CCM Trumpet community. And uh, I am certainly still in touch with people I went to Ethan with, and I'm still in touch with people I went to Michigan with. And uh, we are still in touch with each other all these years later. I graduated from Michigan in 1996 and from Eastman in 1998. And uh, I can pick up the phone and call my buddy Chris uh, all the time. Now, our lives are busy. He's got children. I have children. We have different jobs that are busy and everything, but we're in touch all the time. And uh, and and I look for that in students, uh, you know, uh, someone who's going to be a good fit for the studio and support those ideas because of that very reason, because we get better together, you know, and we learn from each other. Um, one of my, my roommate and my undergrad uh, gave a speech at the commencement, you know, and he, he was saying when he was a freshman on his way into school to undergrad, his mom said, you're going to be going to a really good school and you're going to have really good professors there, but you're going to be around a lot of really good students. And don't forget to learn from those people who are around you. And it has always stuck with me. You know, that was 1996 when he gave that speech and it has remained with me because again, back to what I said about privilege to work in a group like the Marine Band had 19 phenomenal trumpet players, you know, and I learned and I'm still learning something from every one of those folks. And, uh, and I feel like I haven't really left Eastman in that sense, because uh, I'm still, Chris Martin was a senior my first year in my master's degree there and Chris Van Bergen and, you know, other, other phenomenal players who were there, you know, I'm still remembering the things that we did together. It, probably like you, uh, I would imagine, because we talked about it a little bit. There is the shared experience of standing up every week in studio class and playing your memorized Charlie etude or your <laughs> memorized encore or your, you know, um, having an improv class when you're not a specialist in improvisation and things like that. And so we have the same things at CCM now. They have weekly performance assignments. Everybody's going to stand up and play the same thing every week. And I feel like that that shared collective, that spirit of working together, learning things from each other. And I'm encouraging them, ask things of each other. If you like the way someone played something and it meant something to you and you feel like you have something to gain from that, go tell them that and, and sit down. You know, if you when it's safe to do so under COVID restrictions and you see them walking by and want to play for somebody, I'm, I'm encouraging those things to happen. I'm asking them those questions. You know, what did you hear about this? What did you hear about this? Did you hear the way this went down? Um, what did you take away from it? What did you learn from it? You know, and, uh, and then we all grew together that way. Yeah. No, I think it's, that's that's one of the things that when I talk to uh, other Charlie and Barber students, that's often one of the the sort of commonalities mm -hmm. is the the culture of the sort of the studios and how much we learn from each other and not just the level, right? It's not and and maybe you could speak to this, and if it was similar for you, it's not just the level that the level is high. It's that people want everybody to succeed. And mm -hmm. I remember when I interviewed Barbara, she said that. You know, when you go to an audition, you don't want to win because somebody else failed. Mm -hmm. You know, you want to win because you were prepared and you were ready to step into that role. And if you don't win, then you're you want you know your friend maybe to be the one who's going to win, or or whatever, right? And so right. that was really established there that it's not about like I sound good at the expense of somebody else, but rather right. we all kind of lift each other up. And That's so. Right. Was that your experience as well at the Eastman and what you tried to do at uh, Cincinnati? Indeed. I'm, I'm reminding the students constantly, we are all on our own journey. We all have our own things that we're working on. And, uh, and, and how lucky are we then that we have a studio at CCM right now of uh, 18 students where we can learn from each other. And, and somebody else may have heard something in their lesson that is similar to what you heard in your lesson, but, but the way that they, um, 
retell that story, maybe uh, uh, it may unlock something in your uh, way of hearing it that that helps you figure something out in your playing and everything. Um, and so uh, I like the way that Barbara phrased that. I completely agree with her um, about it's not at the expense of anybody else. It's it's that we go forward together. And I also tell my students again, you know, when we talk about releasing yourself from the burden of perfection, also release yourself from the burden of something was meant to happen, right? A, a specific thing was meant to happen because what is meant to happen will happen. And I think the sooner we can uh, give up the pressure of like feeling like you have control over that and just keep working on getting better and the right thing that was going to happen is going to happen. You know, uh, I never imagined that I was going to be able to make my living as a professional musician. And yet I found myself in this wonderful circumstance with wonderful colleagues that gave me remarkable opportunities to play in remarkable places, you know, and I didn't think that was going to be a thing in my life. And yet it ended up being a thing in my life because I just gave up the possibility of a specific thing about me being in the specific Chicago Symphony or the specific New York Philharmonic or wherever, you know, and just say, I'm going to take this audition because it seems like the right thing that like like Barbara was saying make music on the highest level, find places to play the best music played at the highest level with the best people possible, you know? And if that's in the Canadian brass or the empire brass or starting something brand new or in a military band or in a professional orchestra or wherever, you know, um, release yourself from that specificity. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm again, I'm going to play a little bit of devil's advocate. I'm going to make a narrative up right now. And okay. I would love to see how you refute it. It could seem easy for you to say that because you spent your your whole career in the president's own Marine Band, mm -hmm. like one of the best ensembles, and now you're at a great uh, school for music making with great students. Or it can, you know, obviously can appear that way. So people could be like, "Oh, it's so easy for you to say that." Like, release yourself of what was meant to be. But you know, I'm in this group, or I have these opportunities, or I only have this many students. Mm -hmm. And I don't have all those. How am I supposed to release myself from all of those things? Like, oh yeah, like it must be easy for you just to say that. How would you refute that kind of that kind of narrative? I believe that's all in the perspective, right? I mean, my employment in the United States Marine Band was contingent upon the colonel approving my reenlistment. So my initial enlistment was four years, and then there's the option to request reenlistment for two, four, or six years. So um, my employment was never guaranteed. And um, I would say that having that perspective allowed me to continue to want to get better all the time. And, it, and, and therefore we had a mutually beneficial, I wanted to reenlist and I was lucky to be approved to reenlist. And I didn't take that for granted. And when I released myself from that burden, I found myself having a curiosity and relaxing and enjoying the job more. And so I did things like, wandered up to the Library of Congress, which was a couple blocks away from Marine Barracks, Washington, and did some research. You know, I called up Laura Schissel, and uh, I hope your listeners do the same thing. And uh, and I was able to say things to him like, do you have a first printing of the Arbenz book? Because I thought that was fascinating. He said, yeah, come on up. Let's take a look at it together, you know. And I feel like you enjoy the job more when you have that kind of perspective of uh, of whatever. And, uh, and so perhaps it would be a, a, a thing that you could say, looking back on my career, I had that perspective, but I would say that, you know, what if you viewed everything as an opportunity instead, you know? So I have only this many students and I have only this kind of job sounds very burdening to me, doesn't it? And so what if you say, I have the opportunity to gain more students or I have the opportunity to make a difference 
in whatever number of students I have, I have the opportunity to play at the very highest level no matter where I'm playing. And I release myself from not knowing what comes next because when you open up those possibilities, things happen. They happened not just to me, but for people I observed around me also. And um, you become more open-minded and more balanced that way. And you, you open yourself up to receiving these invitations from places that were unexpected. And when we become narrowly focused, I think, on one specific thing or another, or trying to make sure that I measure up to my colleagues and and am succeeding in a way that's going to measure up to them, we close our mind to other possibilities that could lead us to something. And um, let's just be honest. If I hope it's okay for me to be honest. You know, how many people really expected somebody from a military band to get a job teaching at a at a at a school of music somewhere? You know, in my circumstance, for whatever reason, justified or not justified, some some people uh, who I grew up with didn't think this was a good way to make a living. You know, and uh, and and again, when I when it came down to it, I was thinking. Um, I want to be in a place that speaks to me. And when I was there at Marine Barracks, Washington, and I saw the extremely professional way they conducted their audition and they played really good music and had good circumstances with really good people whom I already knew, I thought, this is different than I thought it was. And if I had closed my mind off to those possibilities, I would have missed out on an opportunity of something that was ended up being wonderful for me. Uh, which then led me to have many experiences over many different kinds of trumpet playing. And I, I simply put my resume in for this job that I have now and thought, I'm going to open myself up to the possibility of whatever happens, including being rejected. And 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 then was patient with the process, answering questions honestly. And uh, do I feel lucky they took a chance on me? Of course I do. Uh, but that doesn't mean I'm going to not continue working and doing my best to do those things and and uh, and embracing those other opportunities to grow the studio and and uh, and and have the projects that we're working on. Some of which you know you, you shared in while you were there <laughs> and everything. So uh, so I feel like opening your mind up allows you to uh, experience possibility that you didn't know was there. Gosh, I, I couldn't agree with. I couldn't agree with that more. Like I try to think about it now is just, you know, I may not have what other people have or the opportunities or the access, but like, yeah, like what can I do with what I have right now? Yeah. And it's kind of fascinating when you just sit with that question for a, a while, you know, you <laughs> might come up with an idea and it may not be what you always and dreamed and envisioned yourself doing, but it might keep you occupied long enough to actually get better at doing something like that you know and then you just know like what i'm finding is it just takes longer than you want it to for things to develop for things to happen and so when you are hoping for some sort of immediate reward or some sort of immediate payoff for the things you choose to do with your time it can be uh very hard to to continue moving forward um you mentioned you mentioned comparing yourself to your colleagues, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of two sort of uh, comparisons that are bad. Like we shouldn't compare ourselves to other people. Right. Um, and you spoke to why. I would be curious if you would speak to this other one. Sure. Which is comparing yourself to a version of yourself that never made any mistakes, that that got everything right the first time, this mm. version of yourself that like should be way further along in your trumpet playing development or your career, or like should have gotten better grades but didn't, and you're stuck with this version of yourself that you are, and sort of comparing because I've I've known a fair amount of people actually who are like oh given how old I am or given what school I'm at or given this or given that I should right. be way better than I am right now but I'm right. not and that's like a very 
uh, hard or demoralizing feeling. So I'm curious if you would speak to your perspective on that, if you've struggled with anything like that before, and how you would encourage others to see past it. I think the temptation to compare yourself to that thing that doesn't actually exist is always there. Uh, to answer that question that you just asked, of course, I have that burden in, my, in me that where I I have the temptation to want to compare myself to that version of myself. Uh, but again, reminding myself that that doesn't ever really exist. You know, what's here, what's right now in this moment, if you're focused on staying in present time, that great quote that I heard Jim Thompson give when he was uh, auditioning for that, that job at Eastman when Barbara and Charlie were leaving, he kept saying, stay in present time, you know, be aware of the high C that's coming in Zarathustra, but don't miss every note on the way to the high C, right? <laughs> yeah. And I feel like... Uh, if you are focused on that other version of yourself, then you are not focused on what you are doing in this moment, you know? And if you're f worried about success, you know, what's the, uh, in, what's the old saying, you know, you're kind of worried about, you're focused on what's going on in the future. And if you're sad about where you are right now about other things, then you're focused on what's already happened in the past. And you can only really do what you're doing in any given time right now. And what you can do is reframe that and to say to yourself, if I am focused in the right now, I have the opportunity to do things. I have the opportunity to get better. What I tell the students at CCM, I mean, so the macro idea is I have the opportunity to get better. The middle part of the hourglass, the micro part of that would be if you're recording yourself and, and you are taking notes, you are a student of your own playing then you can record the speed at which you are playing your Clark technical studies. And you can always play one click faster. And then you can always play one click faster, which is like you can always put another plate on, right? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but then also you have the opportunity to overcome, you know, there were times in the CrossFit gym where sometimes because of the way you slept or because of the ceremony you marched the day before, you know, some days you got your deadlift and some days you don't quite have your deadlift, you know, and when I was running more than I am now, some days you have your three miles and some days you don't have your three miles. So then the opportunity becomes, can I get through this three mile run and not injure myself, but also overcome the mental temptation to compare myself to a more perfect version of whatever, because right now the reality is my legs are stiff or uh, I've got back trouble or something like that, or I've got distracting thoughts and it's difficult for me to get the right grip on my deadlift bar or something like that. So um, you have, I think that word opportunity is something that would be a good mantra in that circumstance. I have the opportunity to always play one click faster and to play uh, more a, a more clean version of my Clark technical studies or to um, imagine the possibilities. Have you ever played Vizzuti's technical studies? They're similar to the Clarks, but they go on these many creative different di directions, which I find inspiring, you know, so this, that's an opportunity again, you know? And so that's how I would counter that. If you feel the if you feel the, temptation to compare yourself to a more perfect version of yourself or to your colleagues and things, recognize that those are also opportunities. And that's a more inspiring way that, that unburdens yourself. You have the opportunity to learn from your colleagues. You have the opportunity to grow as an individual and your colleagues can help you get there, by the way. So, uh, so I think that opportunity is that that's, that's another one of my goals is to, to, you know, my daughter is a gifted illustrator. We're going to write the word opportunity and paste it up in the studio. Now, <laughs> you remember when uh, Charlie used to say that he, he would say, you can remember, you can always play beautifully. And he actually wrote it down and he would just point to it in the studio all the time, you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we're going to have a couple of those things in the CCM studio going forward now. Um, anyway, um, I, I think that word opportunity cannot be understated. Yeah, I think I think you're so right. It's sort of a 
if you want to call it a magic pill, it's not, right? But if you want to call it a magic pill of like getting unstuck, mm-hmm. you know, like we all get in ruts from time to time and and for whatever various reasons. And and I think like I think the the exactly what you said, the idea that people are never going to struggle with some idea of comparison to what they wish they would have done here or what they, you know, coulda, woulda, shoulda. I think it's unrealistic to expect that someone will never, ever struggle with that. But like what you're saying is saying, okay, well, I wish I would have done these things differently. I can't change the past, but maybe that's motivation to see what opportunities I can take right now Mm -hmm. to move in a direction that I desire to go. And then those things that we didn't do the way we wanted to do them, become things that we learned from. And then all of a sudden it's not a waste, you know, it's a thing that taught us something. And how many times in your performing career has the tempo just suddenly taken off at one point that was a little bit unexpected or, you know, somebody gets a little bit inspired or somebody doesn't have it one night and the tempo is not quite where you, you know, that, that flexibility allows such a richer, more enjoyable performing experience. And sometimes you end up walking off stage thinking, boy, I didn't realize how that was going to shine at that tempo or that how much more thrilling that was going to be at that tempo. And, uh, you know, maybe something better exists you didn't know yet, you know, and if you had been so narrowly focused on a preset standard, you may have missed the opportunity to experience something better, right? So why not be patient and be open, you know? (laughs) I've made the uh, analogy a couple times in my lessons to remember one of those Star Wars movies where the the Jedi Knight is between those two force fields and he's just like waiting for the force field to open. Then he's able to go back into the fight at that point. Yeah. yeah. Sort of like, uh, is that Qui-Gon Jinn? Is that, is, you know what? It is, so, yeah. so just be patient in that point. And he just goes and just starts, it looks like he's meditating to me. I don't know. And then when the force fields go down, well, now you're back in the action again and you're ready to go. If he had been pacing around and got himself all worked up or something like that, he would not have had very much left to do what he needed to do when the force field came down, in my opinion. So, I mean, I, I don't mean, consider myself a Jedi Knight. So, how would I have known what he has to draw? <laughs> <or not>? but, <laughs> anyway. If I'm not incorrect, he ended up dying. So, spoiler yeah. alert for someone who hasn't seen that movie. <laughs> or um, did he end up dying? I mean, I don't know how you want to. We could take this in a lot of other directions now. It does kind of yeah. come back a little bit, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. I, it's a good, it's a great perspective though. And I think even if you want to go as far negative as possible, or you're you're mm-hmm. really putting a positive spin. If you wanted to put a negative spin on it, you could just say, Well, it looks like I found one way I definitely don't want to do it. You know? Right. right. <laughs> Let's avoid that. And we've yeah. removed at least one <laughs> option from the table of like how I do how I want that thing to go. And I think that yeah. can even help with like what I've struggled with is, you know, trying to find the quote right and interpretation to win a job or impress people or whatever. Well, like maybe you take an audition and things really don't go that way. And you're like, all right, well, like maybe, maybe that's one of the ways to say that didn't work and you try something new and it just becomes, as long as you're willing to give yourself time, Mm -hmm. you can kind of experiment as long as you need, you know? Right. So in my opinion, that time frame goes much quicker when you, again, when you say give yourself time, you know, Sometimes the reason things take more time is because you're kind of stiff and resistant. And when you relax and, and, and open yourself up to the possibilities, then things happen quicker in my experience. Yeah. This is great, man. It's so good to, <laughs> so good to talk to you about this. It's, yeah. uh, I love your perspective. I've, I mean, I agree with your perspective, but again, now mm. I didn't always see things this way. So um, I think these kinds of perspectives, people need to hear them from, you say it a little bit differently than me, but I think m- more people need to be encouraging, especially younger players, but anybody in general, this kind of way. I think this this story that, you know, 
we release ourselves from the burden of perfection. You know, that needs right. to, that needs to be on a poster somewhere. You know what I mean? Sure. So, uh, do you have any final thoughts, things that you uh, think are important or you didn't get to share that you wanted to share or anything like that? Well, I feel like this is, um, like ask yourself, like, where are you finding your inspiration? You know, for, for me, you know, um, meeting you after following your podcast for a while in person was very inspiring to me. And, uh, the conversations that we had, you know, uh, together and, and listening to the way you interacted with the students at CCM, that is still very inspiring. People are still referencing you in lessons, by the way, and things and, and things that you talked about. And, uh, and, you know, I, I studied Latin in high school, so that's why I was before I was saying the ing part as opposed to the ed part of like the the tense of the word is is relevant. You know, because one denotes an active process. Learning is different than learned. To feel like oh, I've learned these things, but I can always be learning. You know, it's sort of like always looking forward down the road and to open yourself up to that ongoing process. Indeed, even the word student, the ent part of the word student. It, it means that you are in the active process of doing something, of observing something, of, of learning something. And so I feel like that's a lifelong process. And I've been privileged in my circumstance to have opportunities. Um, the Marine Band, it is my hope, will continue into perpetuity. And well, I will continue to receive inspiration from them, even though I no longer work there, you know, and it's a delight for me to scroll through social media and to continually be inspired by the trumpet players who are there now and all the other musicians. Um, and so even though my time actively serving and wearing that uniform is over, it doesn't mean I am not continuing to be inspired or receive inspiration from them. So uh, again, you know, embrace your colleagues, embrace your friends, meet people new like Ryan and other people who are who will continue to show you that light of inspiration to keep moving forward and getting better. You know, and what is the next thing? That's another thing I remember from Barbara. You know, even though I, I studied with Charlie, you know, she came off backstage at my master's degree recital and she said, though, that was just great. And now what are you going to do? <laughs> you know, yeah, I was really yeah. inspired by that, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and that's, that's something we can all benefit from. So anyway, uh, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Very well said. Um, if somebody is listening right now and they're mm -hmm. thinking, I like what this guy is saying, I'd like to get in touch with him and let him know, or they have questions about CCM or, just, you know, want to say thanks for your words. How would somebody get in touch with you to do that? Uh, I think the most efficient way would be to reach out uh, via email and to contact us. We are in the process of revamping our social media uh, from a trumpet perspective at CCM right now. Uh, my email is on the, the conservatory's website, and people are welcome to contact me uh, via that. Uh, we are privileged to have a rich school, rich environment for learning, a lot of performance opportunities in a rich city with a lot of culture and history in it and a lot of inspiring trumpet playing going on around us. We are really blessed to have uh, Mr. Phil Collins still on faculty there, whose just wisdom is uh, boundless and unending and inspiration also. So uh, it's a wonderful, creative place that I find inspiring every day when I walk up to uh, this, the school that I uh, know good things are going to be in store because of the people who are there and the opportunities that are there. So please do get in touch and come see what the great students there are doing. Uh, that's awesome. So check, yeah, definitely check that out. Um, if you've connected with some of the stuff uh, Michael Mergen has said, uh, if you need to get in touch with me for any reason, you can do that on thatsnotspit.com or that's not spit on Facebook and Instagram. I would really appreciate it if you had any feelings, happiness, sadness, laughter, 
uh, during this episode if you would leave a rating and a review on iTunes. And please don't forget to share it on social media so other people could find it and enjoy it for themselves as well. Michael, thank you one more time uh, for being on my podcast, being a guest. It was a pleasure for me to get to chat with you. Thank you, Ryan. I'm honored to receive the invitation and to, to know you. Thank you. Yeah. I want to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. And most of all, I would like to thank you for listening. Stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing, and we'll see you next time. 